Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. The events in this story happened between July 2012 and August 2013. I was a case manager at a housing center in northern Michigan. It was basically a homeless shelter, but with added programs to help people get back on their feet. In July 2012, I was working my shift like normal when a man named Dave came in for a place to stay. He looked like he was detoxing from drugs, and he wasn't the most pleasant person to be around. Most clients that come here are down on their luck, so it was explainable why they were sad, depressed, or hopeless. However, Dave's attitude was making me rush the intake process just to get it over with. For the first couple of weeks, I didn't pay much attention to Dave. He attended all the morning meetings and classes, but still had an edge to him. He was short-tempered with everyone, and it was very easy to set him off. However, as time went on, I noticed that I was attracted to Dave. I often fantasized about having sex with him. I would wear makeup and outfits that caught his attention, and he would give me genuine compliments. I was giddy about this. I was married already, so this was a big no-no. However, my desire was focused on Dave, and I didn't really want to be married anymore. Over time, Dave and I would sneak off to have sex and mess around while I was at work. Sometimes it was on the property, and sometimes not. Eventually, my husband found out about it, and I moved out. Dave and I continued our relationship, but had to keep it quiet. He came to stay with me at my new place, but I told him that he couldn't live with me. It was too soon. He had no money, and neither did I to help him get his own place. I suggested getting back into the shelter program because they would pay his rent for two years if he would just do what he had to do to get the funds. After some debating, Dave decided to return to the program. So again, we had to pretend that we didn't have feelings for each other. Looking back on it, we thought we had everyone fooled. But it turns out that most people knew something was going on between us, considering the way we would act around each other. Body language doesn't lie. Dave was able to get the funding he needed for his new apartment. He found a cute place downtown and moved right in. I was glad that he was out of the shelter, 
That way we could continue seeing each other. However, around this time, Dave began to change. He was always upset, depressed, overwhelmed, and climbing the walls. More than usual. The more time we spent together, the angrier he got about everything. Spending time with him was no longer enjoyable. It seemed more like a job, as if I was babysitting a child. I would try to stay home and get some space from him, but he constantly needed me there with him. He would treat me like but want me there with him all the time. It was like he couldn't be alone. When we had sex, it was like he wasn't even there anymore. We would do it because he said he had to get off, but there was absolutely no connection, no feeling, no love anymore. I wanted to break up with him, but I didn't know how to do it. He was very fragile mentally, and he said that he couldn't begin to take the hurt again. When we would talk about breaking up, he would make threats about using his gun to end it all. On January 17th, 2012, I went to Dave's apartment after work. He wanted me to stay the night, but he was in a very bad mood. He was punching the fridge because he wanted to buy pot, but he had given me his money to help catch up on my own bills, and now he resented that. I told him I was done. We were over and I rushed out the door. I knew he had the gun, but I wasn't sure if he would really use it on me, him, or both of us. He chased me outside and tried to get me to come back in. I told him that if he really loved me, he would let me leave. He moved out of the way, and I got in my car and drove off. A few minutes later, I got a call from Dave. I would ask you to turn around, but I know you're not going to, he calmly said. Nope, I replied. He raised his voice a little, saying, Why are you being so cold towards me? I reiterated again. We were done. Are you breaking up with me? He screamed. Yeah, I am, I told him. Then he said, with a scary tone that I'd never heard from him before, Don't do it. Why? I asked. Are you going to kill yourself? I almost mocked it because every time I tried to leave, that was his go-to on what to say. There was silence. The call was still going because the phone still showed a timer going, but I never heard a response. I said his name a couple of times, but ended up just hanging up. I figured he already hung up or he was going to kill himself and I didn't want to hear the gun go off. That was the last time I ever heard from Dave. He ended up pulling the trigger that night, but I'm not sure exactly if it was right after I spoke to him or later on, since other people had spoken to him that night as well, supposedly going on into the early hours of the morning. They said that he sounded so sad. He was on the phone with them, but they were doing all the talking. The police said that when they found him, he had been gone for a couple of days. I had to clean out his apartment and contact his family whom I had never met and were spread across the United States. I sent his belongings to all of them. I learned a lot about Dave and his troubled life. Disturbing things I wish I had known before getting involved with him. 
in the same week as his unaliving, I also finalized my own divorce. It was a very dark time for me. I wanted to die. I was feeling tremendous guilt for all the things that I said and how I said them. I could have taken the gun away many times. It was stored at my house for a long time before he took it with him. I lost a lot of weight, had to get counseling, and I can honestly say that I had never felt so alone as I did then. I just wished that I could change things. For three years, it felt like it was my fault that he was gone. I might as well have been the one that pulled the trigger. At least, that's what I thought. I was glad he had bolted his door because if I had found him, I'm sure I would have grabbed the gun and ended myself too. My therapist suggested that I write down my thoughts and feelings. And as I did, I ended up writing a short book about our entire relationship and the aftermath that came from his death. It's on Amazon. It's called Black and Red Butterflies. The cover shows a blonde woman being held by a man from behind. I recommend those who have lost loved ones to their own hand to read it. There are warning signs, and unfortunately, I didn't pay attention to them or take them as seriously as they needed to be taken. I pray that nobody else has to go through this. If the book can change even one person's life for the better, that may potentially lead to one less death in this world. I graduated high school almost a year ago. I had really no urge to attend college or the military and basically got stuck in my boring hometown for months where I slowly became dependent on Xanax and booze. I knew that I was destined to repeat the cycle of white trash set before me by my parents and theirs before them. I knew I had to leave town, so I decided to sign up for a website you may have heard of called www.oof.com Worldwide Opportunities in Organic Farming You pay a small fee and they make available a directory of organic farming operations that will feed you and allow you to live with them in return for a certain amount of work around the farm. The place I decided to commit to was a Hare Krishna community in the deep south. I got there and my car almost immediately broke down. It was a 30-year-old Chevy Blazer that I had bought on Craigslist for about $500. Later on, I was to find out that it was beyond repair at this point. The closest town to the farm was almost 20 miles away, so I essentially found myself stranded and surrounded by the most unbearable hipsters imaginable. To be more specific, I'd say about a third of the population of the community were either first or second generation Indian immigrants living near the temple for religious reasons. Another demographic were aging hippies, also there for spiritual purposes but running the small-scale organic farm located on the property. Everyone else, however, self-absorbed, condescending, right out of college, but vapid as hipsters. I basically kept to myself, but occasionally was forced into conversations about vibrating crystals and their three-year spiritual journey, no doubt being funded by their parents. I had been there for weeks and was desperate for a real conversation. And that's when Michael showed up. I had heard stories about Michael, 
a couple of days before I showed up. He had left to retrieve an impounded car in a large city about an hour away. Everyone said he was lazy, insane, and would spend hours up in his room doing yoga instead of coming down and working with the rest of us. He showed up late in the evening, going on about how he was going to really get involved with the farming and throw himself into Krishna consciousness. He was in his early 30s, looked as if he was a balding Hasidic Jewish man, his unwashed sideburns curled. He spoke like a stoner cartoon character, his sentences punctuated with and uh or and like giving his utterly fried brain time to figure out what others wanted to hear. He reminded me of many of the friends I left back home. We became fast friends though, as he was the only person there who didn't give me the urge to bite my fingers off when he spoke. We were both originally from Texas, so we talked about the loony conservative teachers we had in high school, football, and of course drugs. Every now and then, he brought up subjects that really sort of threw me off. He wasn't able to get his car out of the impound garage, so he schemed the best way to break it out. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. These plans often involve firearms, pipe bombs, and even telepathy. He told me that he had come to the Hare Krishna temple to befriend some of the gurus and learn Reiki meditation, a form of meditation used to control the minds and bodies of other people. He told me he believed he had used Reiki once to seduce a woman at a party. This is when I understood his reputation. I simply nodded and occasionally laughed when he went off on these rants. I knew one day I would reach a saturation point for this absurdity, but I could probably endure a week more of it. A couple days later, we were eating lunch with one of the gurus. I was telling Michael about my trip to the giant field where the Branch Davidian used to be. He wasn't sure what the Branch Davidian was, so I explained to him about Waco, David Koresh, and the siege by the FBI and ATF that was botched and led to the death of 76 Davidians and four ATF agents. He was absolutely enraged. The government is always trying to silence people preaching the truth. That's so f***ed up. I wanted to explain to him that David Koresh was a sociopathic cult leader, interested in power and nothing else, but he wasn't having any of that. Now I was angry. He was having a tantrum about a subject that he had just learned of, and now he's telling me that I'm wrong and that Koresh was a martyr. This is when I truly saw the insane side of Michael. He was spitting, red as a beet, pacing back and forth. I left the table and got back to work, but nonetheless, he followed me. After half an hour of this absurd argument, I couldn't handle it any longer. I'm not having this conversation with a loon, Michael. How can I expect logic from you? You came here to get superpowers. The look in his eyes changed from anger to hatred. 
he got real still before trying to come at me. Michael was a big guy, much bigger than me. He lunged and I ran. As I ran, I went through my pocket praying I had grabbed my knife before I left my cabin. I know it sounds ridiculous, but you don't walk my old neighborhood without some sort of protection. Plus, it was a pretty useful tool on the farm. Luckily, I had grabbed it and turned around so he saw it in my hand. He stopped and contemplated for no more than three seconds before quickly turning around and finishing his lunch. The next day, I pulled the temple president aside and explained what had happened and that we needed to get rid of Michael. It didn't take much convincing. No one really cared for Michael, and he wasn't much help on the farm. I felt bad snitching on the guy. He was in a pretty desperate situation. He had no car, no money, and I can't imagine he had many friends to boot. The temple president also informed me that he had been an alcoholic for 10 years and had come here in part to get sober. I found it very strange that Michael had never told me this. Later that day, I saw through my window someone drive up and hand Michael several suitcases to pack what little he had. I saw them both drive off to God knows where. Weeks went by, and the whole encounter kind of faded from my memory. But late one night, I got a text. Hey, this is Michael. We can get my car out for $280. Want to go traveling? I never responded. I wasn't sure how he got my number, but I figured he looked me up on Facebook or something like that. A few nights later, I was in the temple office using the Wi-Fi to make some emails. I was making the walk back to my cabin, and from the pitch black, I hear a lot of loud banging coming from inside the barn. I remember thinking that it must have been an animal. I remember thinking to myself that it must be an animal, but also thinking that it must be a pretty big one to make that much noise. I entered my cabin. The actual door to the cabin doesn't have a lock, but my bedroom did, so that's the one that I used. I was pretty unsettled by the banging, but I figured my imagination was getting the best of me. Later that night, I woke up needing to take a piss. The cabin didn't have a bathroom, but we had a shared outhouse. I didn't feel like putting on shoes and walking around in the dark, so I figured I'd just piss in the sink. I know, I know it's gross, but I'm the only one who uses that kitchen. I opened my bedroom door and nearly pissed myself right there. Michael, completely naked, was crouching in a corner of my kitchen, facing the wall. I made a noise that I wasn't even aware I could make, something you would only hear Shaggy make on Scooby-Doo. This noise alerted Michael to my entrance. All he did was glare at me and shake his whole body. I slammed my door and locked it immediately. I knew what he was trying to do. He was trying his best to pacify me with Reiki meditation, which obviously didn't work. I called 911. I didn't open my door or even approach it until I saw the red and blue lights outside my window. Of course, Michael wasn't there when they arrived. My guess is that he ran deep into the woods that surrounded the farm. I explained to the cops me and Michael's history and what happened that night 
there wasn't much they could do since no one seemed to know anything about Michael. I didn't even know his last name. I had to leave the farm shortly after. Calling the police was really frowned upon since I believe many of the old hippies thought they were still avoiding the draft. I didn't mind leaving though. I couldn't sleep knowing Michael might be out in those woods, angrier than he was before. I stayed up almost three days straight while I waited for my friend to come pick me up. Soon, the farm, the hippies and hipsters, and Michael were all in the rear view, fading away with each mile I sped down the highway. This was a weird experience, I know. The parts that I don't know are why Michael came back once he was exiled, what he was doing in my cabin naked, and what the plan was when I inevitably was going to emerge from my room. Maybe I'm giving him too much credit by assuming there was a plan. Bro never seemed to have a plan at any other point. Or maybe I was simply underestimating the Reiki that he was planning to unleash upon me. In any event, I'm glad I never really had to find out. And moving forward, I'll probably do my best to avoid other organic farms and other Michaels out there. This happened around 15 years ago, and nothing came of it, but it was so weird that I still think about it regularly. I was 16 years old at the time. It was early evening, so getting dark, but not yet pitch black, and I was walking home from the bus stop after hanging out with some friends. I had just turned from the main road onto my quiet street when I heard my name being called by a male voice. I was still trying to figure out where the noise was coming from when I see a guy jumping out of a car and jogging towards me, smiling. Again, he says my name and asks how I've been. As he's getting closer, I'm waiting for the penny to drop, but even when he's up close, I realize that I don't know this man, and it's clear from my face that I'm confused. Seeing my confusion, he says, don't you remember me? It's me, X. And I say, no, sorry, I don't remember meeting you before, but how do you know my name? He says something incredibly vague, that he's one of my ex's friends. I say, okay, but what's my ex's name? That's when he starts laughing. I'm absolutely convinced that we had never crossed paths before in our lives. And in addition, he looked like he was in his 20s, so... How would he know my ex, who was my age? He still had this unwavering, creepy smile on his face. Knowing what I know now, I think that he was either high or drunk. But I started to feel unnerved and wanted to end the conversation ASAP. He asked me to come hang out with him, and I say, no, sorry, need to get home. He's being insistent, but I'm being firm and saying that I need to get home and I'll be in trouble if I'm late. My parents are already expecting me. Basically, I'm just trying to end the conversation politely by saying, nice to see you, but I have to go, and I begin to walk away. He seems to accept it, and thankfully goes back to his car. I feel relieved when I see him start to drive away. That is, until I turn the corner. He's parked literally over my house's driveway, and is now standing outside of his car, again, with a weird, intense smile all across his face. 
Now I'm fully freaking out. He's blocking my only entrance to the house. I can't figure out if it's a fluke or if he knew where I lived, but I don't want to walk into my home while he's there. I stop in my tracks and he again walks towards me and starts with the, come hang out, we'll go for a drive. I'm freaked out, but also annoyed at the fact that he's not leaving it alone. So I say, dude, I don't know you and I'm not going to go for a drive with some random guy. He then laughs and points to his car and says, but I'm with my friend. And for the first time, I look into the car and see a girl looking back at me. She looks high out of her mind and is just staring directly at me while also looking through me, if that makes any sense at all. Honestly, my heart dropped looking at her face. She looked miserable and absolutely spaced out. I can't remember how I got rid of him, but I stood my ground and kept saying, no, I don't want to go for a drive. I'm going home. I stood in the same spot. There was no way I was going into my house while he was still there. Until he eventually gave up, got back in the car, and drove away. All while this girl never broke her stare at me. Like I said, nothing ever came from it. I never saw that guy again. And I still don't know how he knew my name. The girl in the car looked older than me, in her early 20s most likely. So at the time, I assumed that she knew what she was doing, but every so often, I think of her and wonder if she needed help. I don't know. Maybe it was more innocent than I perceived at the time. But regardless, I hope she's okay though.